All right. We are back live with the Healthy Indoors live show. I'm your host, Bob Krell. I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors magazine. And I'm really happy that you can all be joining us today. Some of you will be seeing us live. Some of you won't. Uh, we are live streaming to the Healthy Indoors online global community, as well as HealthyIndoors.com, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and a host of other places. Um, so it's really great to have you here. Um, we've been on, we haven't had been on a pause for the show, I guess, for a bit. I guess the best way to describe it is, um, we, uh, took a pause since, uh, last fall. So this is, this is really our debut, uh, official weekly show. We'll be here every Thursday from one to 2 PM Eastern time. Uh, so we look forward to having you join us. If you are watching the program live now on the healthy indoors global community, um, you would be able to uh, comment. So there's a comment uh, chat box in there. And by all means, uh, type some chat in there. If you have questions for our, our guests today, uh, we'll be able to get those on air. Um, and certainly after the fact, uh, the recordings and the podcast will be available. And you can uh, post comment after the after the uh, show is uh, over and done and just in recording mode. So anyway, I'd like, to, with any further ado, to uh, welcome our two guests here today. Uh, from ICP, we have... Uh, Cole Stanton, who is the Director of Education, and Josh Trauman, who's the uh, Director of Sales, is directing. Hey, Bob. How are you? Hi, guys. Hi, Bob. <laughs> thanks, you know, it's thanks, funny. For, <laughs> thanks for having us. I didn't realize this was a... Uh, the inaugural back in action show. So it is, it is because I took a very long pause. <laughs> this is uh, these things happen. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was funny because we just saw each other several weeks ago. I mean, during the pandemic, we haven't, you know, nobody's seen anybody, but we were all just down at the AIHCE show in Nashville. So yes. two, three weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. yeah and it was yeah. a great show. It was great. Well, great was show. Good actually, to see everybody back. Come back. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, you know, the topic of today's show is pretty straight up. Um, we're talking about, you know, we're hitting hurricane season now, right? Officially, I guess, at least in North America, June is it, right? That's the beginning of it. June 1st um, to November 30. Yep. Yeah. So that being said, um, we're, what, what can we be doing to be better prepared this year? You know, and I, I've got a whole list of comments I want to get into and topics, but um, I, I'm going to kick it out to you guys. Um, what should what should we be doing as an industry? What should practitioners be doing? What should uh, even the people in the general public be doing? So, you know, start 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 at a, a good entry point there. I'll let Cole take the lead on it because he'd love to. I know it. Well, well, it, it's a La Nina season, um, so we're expecting. Um, I think 14 or so storms, 14 to 21, of which three to six might be category three, four, or five. Um, and that comes from NOAA, um, from the National, or, um, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and it comes from their guide to uh, the media for how to actually try and intelligently talk about storm season. So La Nina means above average temperatures in the Atlantic. And uh, it means NOAA is about 70% confident that that forecast will, will come through. Um, so it is not a, a staggeringly scary storm season, but it's not a mild prediction either. Um, and I think we can all do better uh, at being prepared uh, before we're all of a sudden boots on the ground and wondering what we're supposed to be doing. Um, 
this is really better described as a storm planning business than a storm chasing business. And actually, Josh wrote an article on this um, a year or so ago. So, Josh, I'll kick to you to add yeah. to that. Yeah. So, you know, one thing that we're, we've all been experiencing for the past uh, two, three years now is uh, extreme constraints on raw materials as well as supply chain, transportation, uh, personnel, employees, etc., so with all of that in mind, you know, this year, more importantly than ever, uh, is, is preparing early, uh, making sure that you have all of your supplies well stocked. You know, if you're a distributor, making sure your, your, your warehouses that you know are in those areas where uh, folks are going to be grabbing things due to storms, Gulf Coast, Southeast, et cetera, are well stocked. Um, not only from a disinfectant and coatings perspective, uh, which FiberLock and Benefect under the ICP umbrella, uh, obviously manufacture, but things like PPE and respirators and uh, dehues and air movers and moisture meters, all of those tools in the toolbox that will be important, making sure you've got, got those well stocked. Uh, and then, you know, from a distributor perspective, and then from a contractor perspective, making sure your shelves are well stocked when you do get those calls and you're ready to go. And you don't have to wait for the, you know, your local distributor to uh, provide those materials. Many of our top distributors throughout the U.S. set up uh, mobile warehouses once storms do come into an area. So there'll be quick boots on the ground prior to the storm arriving, usually looking for a real estate warehouse space where they can set up shop. Uh, many of the uh, distributors also already have uh, shops throughout the southeast and, and warehouses in key locations where where storms would normally hit as well. I mean, Cole mentioned, uh, you know, that this is, uh, predict we're predicting, at least uh, Noah is predicting, this is going to be a fairly rough season. Uh, you know, maybe, a, a, you know, and that, that El Nino, uh, or is it La Nina? El Nino? It's a La Nina. La Nina. Year. Um, so, so, and that, and that type of cycle happens somewhat frequently, right? Um, it's not, not, not a, not an unprecedented event, but, you know, we're certainly coming off of, uh, a situation where we had our, all of our supply lines, super stressed during the pandemic, right? Last couple yeah. of years, you know, especially yeah. 2020, it was, you know, everything kind of fell apart for a little bit. Um, so with that in mind, has, has the pandemic, does that affect how we handle it now or what will, oh doing? yeah, oh yeah, it certainly does. Um, now to an extent, because disinfectants were so important uh, for surface hygiene during the pandemic, it benefits us going into storm season because this is not an industry that ramped down to nothing and shut down. This was an industry that actually amped up and improved its capabilities and its capacity. Uh, certainly there were supply problems, uh, but going into storm season, this is an industry overall that's that's in very good shape. Uh, it's also an industry that improved in terms of quality. Uh, I think a lot of disinfectant manufacturers and a lot of contractors learned an awful lot about how to read an EPA label, how to understand EPA and Canadian labels, uh, how to um, talk to the manufacturer about what they needed, and that led to manufacturers uh, going back to EPA with amended labels. We just got back our newest label uh, for the Benefect Decon 30, and we were able to add a lot of great uh, new claims to it in terms of faster kill times like COVID-2 in less than a minute and some more organisms in less than five. And 
greenhouse instructions for the horticultural industry because we're getting a lot of interest from the folks who uh, are in the cannabis business uh, as that becomes ever more widespread. New York's probably going to go legal real soon. Um, if they well, have kind of legal here, just not legally being distributed and sold. Yeah, right. You can, you can possess it in New York. We're just New York's going to join. Yeah. New York's going to join the family of states that have booming cannabis industries, which call for restoration contractors coming in helping them out because they're going to constantly get mold problems. Uh, so we've added some to the label there. We just got the word from our master registrant on the Shockwave product that we can use the emerging viral pathogens claim on the Shockwave. So there's a lot we've added, and there's a lot of contractors have brought to the table. I will tell you, more people are now experienced using airless paint sprayers to apply disinfectants than ever before. That was something we learned from the, actually from the Baptist Disaster Relief folks, our partners in the volunteer organizations act, uh, active in disaster community, the VOAD community. Um, and that's a great partnership Josh can talk about and I can fill in. Uh, but they were the first that I saw using paint sprayers to spray disinfectant after floods and storms. Uh, to try and get as much area covered as quickly as possible uh, as a prophylactic to stop mold before it gets started. Uh, we took that same approach and taught folks how to use airless sprayers during the pandemic to do large public spaces that needed to be sanitized. And now we're coming full circle, bringing that back around to storm season. And now we have a lot of contractors who now appreciate and understand how useful that tool is. And whether it's Titan equipment or Graco equipment, um, we've got some great experience we can share in terms of technique uh, that will maximize the the coverage and also the performance. So, I mean that that being said, um, so it's you know some obviously some new techniques and uh, uh, maybe procedural ideas evolved from the pandemic. Um, so you you do see that translating into into the restoration side and the and the storm recovery side uh, dealing with these things. If contractors who are the ones responding to the storm take the time to get education, there's a lot of great stuff to learn. It's a question of being disciplined enough in their businesses, take the time out to say, you know what, we need to be educated. We need to make sure that we've always got an educated person leading a particular project. So project supervisors or site supervisors, we now is a great time to invest in education. Yeah, but that's that's been a key point forever, though, hasn't it, Cole? I mean, in, in this industry, I mean, you could almost any factor of the indoor environmental industry has, you know, maybe we've lagged a little overall as an industry, but you know, certainly education seems paramount, right? I mean, that's, no, that's no nothing question. new. You're... Nothing new. It's just that now we're in a singular position. What's different is we're coming off the pandemic, and mm -hmm. we learned a lot. So good educators are blending those lessons learned into what they were already teaching. Mm -hmm. Now, your and your organization uh, focuses a lot on education aspects, which I don't know if that makes you an anomaly in the industry as far as a, a manufacturer. Uh, but it seems like that is a, a real focus. I mean, you you know, they have someone like you in that position of actually director of education, uh, which. Yeah, having someone like me in this position is an investment and it's a commitment and it's to ICP's credit that they believe in education and not just education to train on product, but continuing education that's non-commercial so that our uh, our customers can benefit from maintaining their uh, accreditations in the industry. So whether it's continuing ed for IICRC, for which we have several courses registered or uh, AIA for the architects, or uh, we just uh, worked out at the hygiene show with the folks at ACGIH how to add ABIH credits for the certified industrial hygienists. 
um, we're trying to educate on multiple levels. Um, but even if it's just as simple as having field people who can sit down with a group at a contractor's shop and walk them through uh, the tips and tricks to be successful and the things to avoid that could get them hurt. Um, that's a major step forward. So there's gradations of education. Not everyone is quite as sophisticated as, as ICP has become. Um, but again, the, the key is for the contractor to be disciplined enough to seek education out, uh, especially that they can get remotely now. You know, we don't have to pay horrendous travel bills, um, training on site, and training in person, nothing replaces that interpersonal relationship and the relationships you develop by going to a class. Um, but we have online resources that make education more practical in terms of time and money. I mean, certainly the, uh, you know, the whole aspect of uh, doing remote training, remote, you know, I think it's a lot more accepted now than it was, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, uh, you know, doing and online training doesn't necessarily have to be asynchronous. I think you're referring to a lot of stuff that would be recorded. But I mean, you know, yep. certainly there's a lot more of the university model distance learning where, you know, you're you're engaging like this, where you're seeing each other. And I would argue that that's probably almost as good as uh, in-person training. You know, it's a little harder. You can't do hands-on or it's, it's to be a lot more creative with that. I'd agree. Um, and I'll, I'll take the liberty of taking a plug. If people would go to icpmasterworkscommunity.com, that is the platform that I'm trying to build and grow out and crowdsource and manage all the time. Uh, we built that out originally to show recordings of some of our live uh, classroom training um, and some of our uh, live stream training um, webcasts like this one. Uh, we are now going to be expanding that capability so that people can go there watch on demand, take a quick quiz and get their credentials fulfilled that way. And that's really the, that digitalization is the direction that everything is going. And so if, I, if I could jump in real quick too, Bob, one thing that Cole and I took away from the AIHA conference that we all saw each other at a few weeks ago is because everybody's been locked up, if you will, for the last two or three years, the continuing education credits are at an all-time high as far as the need for folks like CIHs or CSPs um, in order to maintain their, their uh, CIH or CSP, they need to have a certain amount of credit hours in a certain time period. So, you know, one thing Cole and I did at that conference was we went from booth to booth to all the environmental consultants, uh, engineering firms that, that were present there and offered up our, our services through Masterworks, whether or not it's live or pre-recorded for them to gain some of those credits at the comfort of their own desk or in their conference room with, with their colleagues um, to, to make sure that they've, they've got the education as well as the continuing ed points that they would need. I mean, the big thing is, is also being able to, you know, uh, translate this information and education into practical application. Right. I mean, and I think that's, I, I know Cole, you've been, you've been in the industry forever, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean that derogatorily because we're both kind of old, but you know, you, you've had a lot of experience, you know, from, and, and both of you actually, from the standpoint of uh, people that are on the manufacturer product side, you guys also have spent time in the field. I mean, you, ha you have actual real, real world yeah. knowledge, right? And when it comes to that storm season, real world knowledge is, is critical. Um, you know, we have taught courses on uh, storm response, but it's really all about getting out there and interfacing with the contractor and understanding 
it might be the exact same product, you know, disinfectant cleaner or wipe, whatever the case may be, or mold resistant coating or fungicidal coating. But the context is all different. Uh, the timetable is different. The demands are different. Um, and frankly, uh, we, we've always felt it's really important to cycle all of our people as many as we possibly can uh, safely uh, into a, an affected area um, almost as soon as pump out is done. Because after pump out completes and we've got drying and dehumidification and demolition, uh, all of a sudden we're at the stage where these folks need uh, the right uh, disinfectant that has the right EPA or Public Health Canada registrations uh, for stormwater, for black water, for sewage, for the types of organisms they're likely to encounter, uh, for the types of surfaces they need to work on, uh, hard non-porous or porous. Uh, so, you know, there's a in the field component that we've always been committed to uh, that, you know, if we get out and can make ourselves available, uh, we can certainly help people direct people to where our products are, are when they need them. Um, but we can marry them up with the right tools and techniques. Uh, and it is it's a little different. It's definitely different in storms than we're used to in terms of pandemic response, where people were going in and clean detail cleaning and sanitizing office buildings. Uh, or schools. Um, again, same disinfectant, very different dynamics. Yeah, well, t I mean, totally different application, right? Because when you have a category three water loss and, you know, catastrophic flooding in, in a structure, that, that's a lot different than just doing uh, detailed uh, hygienic uh, cleaning. You know? yep. uh, the, the other thing that I think, you know, in an, I think the general public tends to, uh, associate uh, hurricane damage, flood damage, you know, the first thought is mold, uh, I think in the general consumer's mind, but that really, that's not the most immediate threat, obviously, from from right. these, these floodings, chemicals, pathogens, all, you know, mold is a subsequent problem, but, uh, you know, mold, what, what, what do we need to be down, worried about when there's a flood? Yeah, mold is down the road. One of the most heartbreaking things we see after storms are the almost inevitable yet preventable newspaper stories about um, residents trying to do their own flood clean out or even experienced um, contractors uh, who contract necrotic fasciitis or, you know, one of the flesh eating bacteria, um, utterly preventable exposures. Uh, but people need to realize that storm water, first of all, seawater is black water. And that a lot of people need to remember that seawater is category three water. Water that stands around for any length of time is contaminated. Um, sewage from both animals and people. Uh, in the, th the list of threats goes on and on. Um, people need to take precautions. You know, one of the things people need to do is have the right disinfecting system set up for their personal protective equipment. You know, not all disinfectants can be used for PPE. Uh, and, you know, we need to look carefully at what wipes we're using uh, because wipes are the kind of thing that make it easy for our workers to sanitize their PPE. And if you don't make it convenient, they won't do it. And now their health is at risk. Um, so, you know, just thinking about simple things like wipes and how they're integrated into your operations. Uh, you're going to use wipes to do a, a whole, you know, uh, uh, wall of studs? No, <laughs> no. But there's a role for those and there's a role for the, for the liquid products and, you know, for sprayers and foamers and pump ups and, you know, all the tools in the toolbox. 
I mean, um, that's a great the wipes wipes are a great point though because i want to want to step back on that because th there's different types of wipes there's wipes for cleaning surfaces and disinfecting surfaces and the the sanitizing wipes for your ppe you know it has to be stuff that can have skin contact and right it, whole, whole whole different uh, genre of products right that's right that's exactly right and you need to also understand that wipes only go so far you know don't overuse it uh, your your typical wipe um might do half a square foot to a square foot. Um, whereas some of the so-called premium products, um, ours among them, can do two to three square feet, which is, of course, percentage-wise, an enormous jump in capability. Uh, but it still means that these are tools with limited applicability. Um, you don't try and do a large surface area with, with wipes. Uh, but you can't not have the wipes either. They've got to be part of your kit. And that I, makes sense. That Bob, makes sense. An, another highlight too that is often overlooked is the asbestos and lead factor after a storm. Many folks just, you know, zero in and focus on mold and water intrusion and, and start ripping out walls and, and spaces that are contaminated with asbestos and or lead. So it's also very important when any of that demo happens to make sure there's asbestos and lead surveys done prior to that. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's a, that's a really good point you're making there, Josh. Because uh, you, again, we're dealing with historic building stock, and, a, and I think Cole and I had this discussion. And he published an article a while back on uh, just the amount of legacy asbestos that that remains in buildings in the United States. And I, I was horrified at those numbers. I actually did believe that maybe seventy plus percent of it had been cleaned up already and abated. Uh, and we're not there, are we? No. <laughs> no the most optimistic numbers we see is that 70% of the legacy is still out there. It's exactly the opposite of what you're seeing. In fact, I would wager it's more like 10% has been addressed and we still have 90% to go. You know, just this morning, I was talking with, um, very confidentially, with uh, one of the uh, big distribution companies. Uh, and they'd gone back and done some research and pretty much found out that um, their um, sales uh, with abatement, specifically asbestos and lead, over the past 20 years, were actually year over year almost, you know, exactly the same. So this is not a declining industry. Uh, this is actually a very healthy, thriving industry. Is it sexy? No. No, lead and asbestos aren't sexy. But they're stable and they're not going anywhere. And there's a labyrinthine set of regulations that restoration contractors have to deal with. So what you're referring to is a January article I'd written, which really just encourages almost in desperation the restoration contractor. Hey, look at this. Make this part of your service offering. Understand how this works. Don't keep burying your head in the sand saying, I'm a restoration contractor, not an abatement contractor. The lines have blurred, folks. They've been blurring since 2008, uh, since the Great Recession you know, when everyone was suddenly considering, hmm, how do I diversify my business? Well, if you haven't diversified and bolted on some of these environmental services now, now is the time. And storm season is, means moments of urgency where you're going to wish you'd done it. Well, I mean, the line should have blurred a lot sooner, to be honest. Um, you yeah. know, people got into the, you know, the mold uh, industry and it's like, oh, we, we don't do asbestos line. We just do mold. It's like, yeah, okay. Except that you're disturbing building materials that probably have ACM and lead, lead-based right. paint products. Right. So this, this, it's not a new thing. It's just that maybe people are more cognizant of it. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, one other thing I think that um, needs to be borne in mind is fire season. Um, fire, you, you mentioned, you know, things, we're, we're developing things and we're becoming more aware. I think we're all a lot more aware of fire season and um, the amount of fire that we're dealing with. Well, fire season places stress on storm season. You know, fire season depletes resources that otherwise would be available for storm season, either in the form of um, contractors who can respond or adjusters who can respond or um, consulting professionals who can handle, you know, massive uh, losses, um, even disinfectants. You know, we've talked for years and taught for years, clean it, kill it and coat it. That's always been our mantra, clean, kill, coat. And that actually was born out of water damage and mold and is very applicable to storm. Uh, especially because, you know, the clean and kill uh, doesn't prevent that mold from coming back in these structures that are cleaned up and no longer buttoned up and no longer conditioned, especially in these hot, humid uh, Gulf Coast environments. Uh, but we also use disinfectant after fire. Uh, we board up, the mold goes crazy, and we've got to clean that out. So the tougher and nastier the fire season is, and you know, we had fires in Colorado on New Year's Eve this year. Uh, but for the most part, fire season is at its height in July, August, September. And it just extends longer than it used to. And that's peak storm season, too. So those mutually stressing factors uh, are going to take their toll, which is yet another argument for be prepared, have inventory, these are not materials that spoil in a week. So you can be strategic and logistical in how you deploy your cleaning and disinfecting chemistry, as well as having your inhibition, your preventative products, your coatings, your fungicidal coatings and mold resistant coatings ready to discuss with your client and ready to go if that's what they want to do. And, and fire, I guess, uh, what, clarify too, the, the fire season, um, I think we we typically tend to think of it as being a West Coast issue, um, but is that is that necessarily the case anymore? No, no. I mean the 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 fires that are colossal, uh, that are national nightly newsworthy, are still for the most part out west. Um, but there's a lot of fire in Texas. There's a lot of fire on the plains. You know, grassland fire can do an awful lot of damage. Uh, and we're not just talking about fire that finds its way into communities and burns homes, uh, although that's definitely the case. You know, more construction takes place in what we call the WUI, the wildland urban interface now than in any other part of the country. Uh, in that, So there's a lot of construction going on in the WUI, and we're putting ourselves in the way of fire. We're putting ourselves in the path of fire. Uh, because that's where we're building now. Um, but even grassland fire, you know, produces a ton of ash, a ton of combustion particulate. Uh, and, you know, credit to the IICRC for putting a lot of effort into uh, Brad Kovar's committee that's developing the IICRC S760, which is going to be the new wildfire standard and which is really coming along quickly. Uh, and it's going to be really exciting to see uh, how that changes the industry, because it's going to help us design uh, training courses. Uh, it's going to help us standardize uh, operations so that people understand what, what really needs to be done. Um, you know, for example, 
um, when there's a wildfire, usually the uh, HVAC system isn't shut off right away. So we get a massive amount of contamination uh, in the ductwork, uh, contamination from sap and softwood that is very sticky, very cold, and very difficult to remove. Uh, and has the opposite pH of what you expect with fire damage. So you need to clean it differently. And you almost always need to offer your client or consider sealers because there will be a lot of non-removable particulate that otherwise can eventually get into the airstream. Uh, so the, the wildfire uh, dynamic is more than just out west. Uh, there's a lot of fire on the east coast. Um, there's fires every year uh, in Maine, where my family is from. Uh, and it's, um, it's just not reported on as much because it's ordinary. Uh, but well, cause the scope, right? the scale of the scale of those fires are not as large as some of the massive things we're seeing on the West coast. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but you know, it can happen in 1947, half the state of Maine burned. Uh, it was a massive natural disaster that no one remembers today, nor should they, I guess. I mean, it's a long time ago. Uh, but it happens, and it's because of climate change, it's going to happen more and more frequently. Um, we're also going to see demand um, when it comes to mold and disinfectants from the contracting community. You know, general contractors around the East Coast, up and down the eastern half of the country, are noticing they're getting less and less buildable days. They're getting more and more days with rain this time of year, May, June, July. And what that means is those structures that are not yet weather tight are going to grow mold. And so there's going to be more demand for professionals to either uh, work directly for those general contractors. And a lot of general contractors are hiring restoration professionals to be an in-house team rather than contracting it out. Sure. Um, but that is going to be, you know, another demand at the same time of year uh, as fire season and storm season. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there needs to be a paradigm shift to some extent, though, I think, in, in the general contracting, you know, uh, uh, construction industry as far as the way they stage the, the order of operations and you know especially here I, I can speak to the northeast pretty heavy you, you see a lot of miss I'm going to say mismanaged because that, that's the only way I can describe it as a consultant going out there. They have a mold problem on a stick frame construction building. Why do they have that? Well, because they left a lot of their materials sitting out in the water, letting them get rained on. They didn't have the building dried in anywhere near when they should have. And they already started doing finish work on the inside when they were still you know, literally uh, windows not even in installed in the building. And That's right. That, that mindset has to change. It has to change. The lumber is green. The wood yeah. is wet. I mean, the list goes on and on. Well, but that's well, why we're here to help. So. Yeah, well, and I think that's really important, you know, and I, I could speak, you know, to that directly, Cole, with, uh, you know, years ago, you know, because I'm a contractor in the industry, or have been, and, uh, you know, just the support, you know, FiberLock and you with FiberLock uh, gave us, you know, and we had some technical issues out in, out in the field, and I've never had that type of support in any other company I've ever worked with, to be honest, uh, from a vendor. I was uh, astonished and uh, pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Say yeah, that's one thing we do. We, we do have a lot of boots on the ground, if you will, throughout the U.S. and Canada. Uh, under the ICP Building Solutions Group umbrella, the FiberLock and Benefect uh, teams are both under the Environmental Restoration Group. And um, we've got coast to coast covered. Uh, as Cole mentioned earlier, when any of these storms happen, our guys are some of the first ones in when it's safe to come in, work with our local distributors in the, in the area as well as the local contractors going job to job, helping helping them with projects, 
you know, if there's a scope of work that needs to be detailed, helping them with that, as well as showing them where our products are uh, in those storm areas and, and helping deliver them sometimes uh, from the distributors. So we definitely have a great team and um, are very proud of the guys. So take a little bit of a different tack here. Um, in our pre-show, Cole, you mentioned, you know, just the uh, the efforts of volunteer organizations after hurricanes to get back. Mm -hmm. into, well, I mean, we're talking not just hurricanes. We're talking natural disasters because it, it, obviously volunteer organizations would come into play with catastrophic flooding or also the aftermath of uh, large fires, right? I mean, That's right. Either That's way. Right. Um We've got a very special relationship that we treasure with uh, the folks from Southern Bas Southern uh, Baptist Disaster Relief with their um, Send Relief organization. And that re relationship goes back to 2005, right after Katrina, uh, when we started working with each other. You know, they they can deliver 60 to 70,000 trained volunteers and hundreds of vehicles um, that do everything from feeding uh, feeding thousands meals to childcare, uh, but they also have crews who are trained to do what they call muckouts. And a muckout is when they uh, get to a property uh, and they are prepared and trained sufficiently that they can uh, go in there and stabilize um, the situation. Uh, and that involves removing a lot of the uh, residues, uh, the filth, uh, the accumulated muds and all that um, that have uh, arrived with the, the flood or the hurricane. Um, they also do work um, after forest fires called ash out. Uh, and that involves a lot of removing the, the ash and the soot, uh, as well as helping look for personal belongings in, in the rubble. Um, but muckouts are where we work a lot with, with uh, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief and actually very grateful. We've been one of the few, if only, uh, outside uh, folks to be invited uh, to their national conference, their national disaster relief conference, strictly to teach, to educate on disinfectants. And um, they are, uh, we donate a lot of product as well. Uh, donate a lot, pallets and pallets of, of shockwave uh, in the aftermath of the large natural disasters. Um, there are other organizations we work with as well. Um, in fact, we work with probably a, a solid dozen of them. Um, but I, you know, would say that the Send Relief folks from Southern Baptist Disaster Relief make the greatest investment that I've seen thus far in education to make sure that their volunteers are effective and safe um, and that they know what they're doing and mm -hmm. that, that everything's written down. Um, when they arrive, um, you know, one of the things I think has been the case in the past and this was something we discussed when we invited them to visit the property insurance restoration conference which unfortunately the pirc which didn't survive the pandemic but was a great you know multi uh three times a year event uh hopefully it comes back um but what we noticed was a lot of the big uh, franchise networks and a lot of the big uh, con uh response contractors did not have any connection with the volunteers uh, organization active in disaster, VOADS, VOAD, uh, and almost considered them to be competitors. Uh, and they're not, they're not That's competitors at all. Yeah. Um, there was actually some genuine hostility between the yeah. two communities, which was really just born out of a lack of understanding and awareness as to what each of them do. Uh, and they each plays a different role. 
so it was pretty darn gratifying to be part of bridging that gap and trying to bring those communities closer together and introduce them to one another so they had you know people they could communicate with um the volunteers are impressive um and there are you know of course many gradations uh there are some folks who show up on disaster sites with pickup trucks ready to haul away mattresses and have no idea what they're doing and actually end up hurting themselves um but on the other hand there are some organizations that are remarkably professional and have their they have their their procedures down. They've been doing this for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I would love to see that process where the volunteer organizations and the professional storm response community uh, continue to come together um, because I think they could really benefit each other. I mean, do you see that happening? Uh, you know, more readily. Because I, I, I could also see how the, the professional community could also see them as maybe costing them dollars. <laughs> I, I'm Right. Well, yeah. and for the most part, the folks that the disaster relief folks are are helping are homeowners in, in, the, in their homes. And they're not large commercial buildings. They're not universities. They're not colleges. Um, yeah, they don't. They focus on people who don't have insurance. Right. So so they really are there to help those that have no other way to fix the problem uh, monetarily or, you know, Labor so they're speaking. not really viable customers. No, not really. And you know, for the most part, you know, many, many of those large con, uh, contractors do some residential work. But for the most part, when they come into these storm affected areas, they're looking for the hotels, the universities, and the WalMarts, the Targets, etc., uh, to get that infrastructure back open, uh, dry, and safe, uh, and not so much, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith's house. So okay. that, that's where disaster relief comes into play. And, you know, my first experience with them, I was literally amazed. I think it was Cole and I and and one of our guys, John Alvarez, based out of Florida. um, We were working the storm that came into the Carolinas in North Carolina. And just to see how organized they were, you know, basically everything from taking care of, of children with child care, setting up feeding stations to help people with hot meals, breakfast, lunch and dinner. Uh, setting up showering areas, uh, places for people to sleep and stay in churches that were not affected. You know, it was amazing to see how many people came together. And like Cole said, how they have it so organized. I mean, they literally have a scope of work that each one of these guys, you know, goes around with in a three ring binder of of how to tackle each problem uh, down to cleaning, disinfecting, using coatings, et cetera. And yeah, the offseason they train. It's it's remarkable yeah. what they do, and they stay. And I was just talking right. to one of their principals last week, and he said they still have crews actively working after Ida. Really? Yeah, they're still there because people still need help. Well, that's the thing. I, I mean, I think you pointed out to it. There, there's a there's a large sector of the general public, right? The, the homeowners and uh, tenants and you know rent, renters that don't have the resources to to do this work and they're just kind of left by the wayside. Yep. So if so, our restoration contractors are more comfortable with, because they get those folks, you know, asking them, hey, you know, will you work on my property? You know, the, this is a place where the restoration professional can, you know, guide the the desperate property owner in the right direction and say, no, we may not be able to help you, but here's an organization that can. And where would uh, where would somebody find uh, more information on these organizations? Is there, I mean, 
we, we can certainly get some liner notes from you guys and put them in the show with the show. But um, yeah, we can do that. And, you know, most states have an emergency um, preparedness program. They have an emergency management program. And a lot of these volunteer organizations serve on those programs. They're they're part of the phone tree and part of the committee, part of the network. Uh, so the volunteer organizations active in disaster actually, I believe, have their own organization, VOAD. Uh, so you can go, I think, I haven't done it in a while, but I think you can go to voad.org uh, and uh, find a lot of them listed there. Uh, but you can list by your state too. Like I would do Massachusetts VOAD and I think I can get some great online resources that way. Um, certainly, uh, Send Relief is one of the largest in terms of national scope in terms of all 50 U.S. states and, and the Canadian provinces in terms of having crews um, ready to go. Uh, and down in the um, storm alley uh, and tornado alley states, uh, those crews that are ready to deploy almost in a day or two's notice are very robust. So uh, I, I take a little switch again. Um, IACRC, you, you, you spoke about it briefly. Uh, that organization obviously has created standards for a lot of aspects of the indoor environmental uh, industry. You know, uh, S520 being the mold standard is in currently in revision, right? And uh, and you're you're participating in that committee, correct? I have been since 2002. So yeah, this is my 20th year with 520. So so where where are we at with that? Is that I mean I keep hearing that we're going to see it soon. So four and a half years later, uh, since we started the most recent revision and. These are ANSI standards, they're American National Standards Institute. So they're internationally recognized, which also means they have to be maintained and curated in certain ways to maintain their validity uh, and their legal standing. Um, you're supposed to revise them every five years. Uh, so we started the revision process four and a half years ago thinking it would be a year and here we are four and a half years later. So it's been a long, hard slog. Um, but we finished the actual writing uh, at the IICRC Standard Summit in Las Vegas uh, the first weekend of March. Uh, and we are working on now uh, fixing some of the internal inconsistencies, uh, working on the, the references, the glossary, um, and making sure that the different parts of the document agree with each other. Uh, and then from there, it will go to IICRC, to legal, to editing, and uh, hopefully in the not too distant future to publication. I'm hesitant to predict how many months away it is, but it is months, not years. And hopefully it's only a few months. Uh, we might even have a document by late in storm season. Um, certainly I think the professionals this industry can count on as we go from calendar year 22 into 23, once the standard's out, that'll affect how everybody does training. And that'll result in a lot of retraining uh, so, you know, be prepared to have your folks get educated on um, what's different. It's going to be a really good time to do refresher mold training and refresher water damage training uh, when the new document comes out, because that is the document that the lawyers look at, that the insurance companies look at, that the government looks at. It's not just our little guideline in our industry. Uh, it affects a lot about how we do, how we do it and how we get paid. Are we, are we, should we be expecting any uh, monumental changes? I mean, a really, really, uh, I know you probably can't let the cat out of the bag. It's not finalized, but uh, big paradigm shifts, anything coming that we should be excited about or scared of? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's some good clarifications about what condition one, two, and three are. Uh, 
um, and what normal fungal ecology is. Um, personally, I'm a specialist in the chemistry and the coatings and the cleaners and the disinfectants. Uh, so I'm very close to that language. And I think we made some remarkable improvements. Uh, unfortunately, you know, as the industry, the water damage and mold industry has, has gone on and grown, we are seeing, and not at all unpredictably, we're seeing a, a sort of uh, insurgency of blow and go spray and pray um, applicators uh, and manufacturers who are encouraging that type of magical, um, you know, silver potion uh, product. Uh, and one of the guardians at the gate is the 520 document in that it makes clear in a consensus document uh, that no, we, we do need to clean. Um, as Howie Wolf always said, it was the missing step. You know, we forget what we get paid for, and that is to remove the contamination. And everything else we do is useful and complementary. Uh, and so um, the document is stronger on its feet in those areas. Uh, not that it wasn't already, but it's, it's better now. Uh, well, it, but there were certainly out. weaknesses. I mean, let's face it, the industry since the mold rush 2000, right? I mean, yeah. there's the, the magic silver bullet potions have been, you know, that people have been hawking that stuff forever. And it's been particularly bad lately, and the pandemic made it worse. Sure. Yeah. Uh, everyone, everyone during the pandemic wanted, um, you know, something that could make everything better in a snap. Uh, so we protect their services for up to six months, right? Yeah. The problem is they didn't really understand, didn't really understand how the transmission was happening with, with SARS-CoV-2. I mean, it, yeah. that's another story. Well, yeah. <laughs> I I mean, go there. <laughs> no, and you know what, Bob, it's, I would say, let's do that story sometime because I followed that all the way through. And I think it's a sure. really, really fascinating story about regulation and the media and how different pieces get picked up upon. Sure. Um, but you, I think we, we all know that uh, mold is an area where we're especially susceptible to um, people making promises that these products are going to solve all their problems instantly and that none of the elbow grease is going to be necessary and none of the disruption is going to be necessary. And that's just not true. To get at the circumstances that led to the mold, the moisture problem, there's going to be some disruption. Um, you know, drilling holes in sheetrock and flooding wall cavities with magic products and telling everyone that the, your home has been made better. Um, it sounds ridiculous in an interview context like this, but it's exactly what people want to believe when they're desperate. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is yeah. mold, mold is, is a symptom. I always say this when I'm training too. mold is a symptom. The problem is moisture problem, right? There either, there was a sudden occurrence or there's an ongoing, you know, building dynamic issue that's happening there. Uh, so if, if you're not dealing with the source of the problem is the moisture problem in the indoor environment, you know, and you have to deal with that. And after storms, we see that all the time. You know, there's a there's a rush to build back up. And if we don't address the moisture issues, if we don't um, make sure that we're moving ahead with a, you know, as clean as possible environment, um, then the chances of down uh, downstream consequences become, you know, greatly enhanced. So um, you, you also uh, mentioned ISCRC's uh, forthcoming uh, uh, fire standard. Uh, and that is, which document is that? Well, there's two, actually. You know, okay. it, it's remarkable to think that the 
natural disasters or not natural the disasters that birthed the restoration industry were the great urban fires of the 20, of the 19th century yeah whether it was charleston where josh is or new york city or boston or chicago of course and mrs o'leary's cow yeah what originally led to insurance restoration was city and state governments knowing that after these devastating fires there's no way they could pay there's no way they could you know uh have those resources to get a city back on its feet um but despite how long we've been dealing with fire there's never been a standard there's been a guideline um that we've had in ria um that ria has been the custodian of for 20 some years and it's a good document um but we've never actually had an ANSI accredited standard. And as I mentioned earlier, standards are important because um, they are the best practice document that prudent professionals should be expected to follow. Uh, and they are what are used by courts of law and by the insurance companies. And uh, they determine how we do things to get paid. So how amazing is it that it's taken us well over a century to finally get a standard out? And the standard that's coming is the S700 is the structural fire standard, uh, which it, that group has been working hard uh, since they took over that standard from IAQA and ASHRAE. Um, and you know, I did a lot of work on the language when it was still an IAQA ASHRAE document, a lot of that carried over. Um, that document's also getting close to coming out. So there are two fire standards. There's the 700, which is structural fire, and then the 760, which is wildfire. Um, and when were you going to see those? I mean, the way wildfire is going, I'd love to say end of year. Um, okay. 700, you know, I thought we would have seen or at least seen it much closer. So there there seems to be a bit of a slowdown, but maybe I'm just not, you know, in the loop. Um, I don't get the feeling that it's coming out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're also still looking in, a, in multiple months. Um but it has to be close. Uh, so uh, this could be really, you know, um, an exciting year in restoration if we're all trying to digest a new mold standard, a new water standard that we just got this past year, uh, and two new fire standards, uh, as well as the health and safety guides that are getting close to publication. So it could be, we could be looking at an avalanche of uh, content to digest all at once. And a very busy year for trainers. Good opportunity. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It seems like, you know, they go hand in hand, right? If, mm -hmm. you know, new standards uh, require uh, re-educating. Yep. Yep. So yeah, there will be a lot of classes to choose from. Uh, so, you know, consider who your your gurus are. It's like everything else in life. We're all successful by knowing, you know, who to call and ask those tough questions. Sure. Sure. I mean, so, I mean, it, it does look like there's a lot of a lot of new stuff on the horizon. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting. I, 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 it's an exciting time. You, you yeah. know, um, you know, we're coming off this pandemic and I say we're coming off because it's not over yet, but we're, at least we're, you know, I, I guess we're on the waning stages of it. At least it appears to be. Um, do, do you see going forward from your both of your perspectives in the industry on the manufacturer side and, you know, and on the side of actually selling products that are used in the industry, has there been a paradigm shift? I mean, or do you think the people are generally more interested in improving indoor environmental conditions or at least more attuned to it since the pandemic? And is that something that's going to be short lived because we're, you know, we have short attention spans and, you know, in this country, especially, or uh, is that you think there's going to actually be a, 
a substantive change moving forward. Well, there's been a lot of money. <laughs> there's been a lot of money devoted to ventilation, and you know, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think improving ventilation, especially in schools um, and other public settings, is long overdue. I think everybody would agree with that. Uh, I think expecting ventilation to uh, solve um, public transmission problems of epidemic and uh, pandemic disease uh, is again wishing on a star. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the best way to look at uh, the, I think that we've all learned the best way to look at controlling outbreaks, uh, epidemic and pandemic, is the solution's got to be multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Sure, social distancing. Absolutely. Surface transmission, um, the right, you know, whether or not to mask. And if so, with what um, ventilation is very, very important. Air exchanges and fresh sure. air. Um, all of these things have to work together to effectively control a situation. And one of the things I've been traveling around teaching is I like to call it SHEP, Surface Hygiene Epidemic and Pandemic. It's one of the programs we offer, which talks about yeah, we may be on the waning days of the pandemic, but it's made us acutely aware that there are epidemics, there are outbreaks all the time. There'll be, there are communities that have measles mm-hmm. outbreaks or community acquired MRSA or meningitis. And a lot in those situations, in those communities, people will turn, whether they're in government or facilities management, to the local restoration contractor and say, I've got a problem. You know, I've got a hockey team that's got a MRSA outbreak. You know, I need to, um, I need to make sure my environment for these people is cleaned and sanitized and maintained, such that that epidemic will recede. Uh, so having a chef capability, I think, is a smart play for any restorer who considers themselves the leader uh, in their local community, because every community in North America, every community, I don't want to speak for the whole world, but every community in North America is going to experience an outbreak of something. Sure. And so the restoration contractor is who people turn to. So it would be a real crying shame if the lessons we learned about how to use, how to use our skills and apply them to pandemic are forgotten. We need to retain the lessons learned, incorporate them into work practices so that when we're called upon to respond in our individual community, we're ready. But that's isn't that the key point, though, Cole? Because it, it would be a shame, but you know we have a tendency to do that. Yes, we <laughs> you know, do. We do have a tendency to be very short memoried when it comes to these things. You know how do how yeah. do we how, what do, what do we do different this time so that we actually affect positive change? Well, we capture as much of what we've learned into the standard operating procedures that are ready to uh, make actionable as soon as possible. And that needs to be done in the building owner and management community, but it also needs to be done by the restoration contractor. You know, now is the time to, uh, you know, and if you need to work with partners like ICP, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we have a program, the SHEP program, and there are others like that out there where we can say, let's put it down in writing. Let's put it up on your website. Let's have a page on your website that talks about what you can do in terms of outbreak and epidemic. And let's make sure that we've got a training schedule so that we do a refresher, you know, once a year. If for a lot of these folks who are already doing biohazard and uh, who are doing uh, trauma scene, uh, who are doing illicit labs, clandestine meth, that sort of thing, um, those people really have a lot of the same skills uh, that are ready to go. So it's a question of um, 
capturing that and distilling it down as part of your service offering so that every time you're in front of a client uh, as, a, as a restoration professional, uh, whether it's consulting or actually executing, you know, doing the, the contamination work, um, there is a bullet list of services that are offered that's backed up by standard operating procedures or even architectural specifications. So um, that's how we capture it now while it's fresh and how we maintain it as a um, both a service to the community that's desperately needed as well as a source of revenue uh, that sustains the restoration professional in the future. So we are coming up on the bewitching hour. I'm going to let each of you uh, have a short, you know, uh, final final point, final final thoughts. Um, I'm going to end up going to Josh first, and uh, then we'll come back to you, Cole. And uh, yeah, we'll wrap this one up. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Really appreciate you having us on. Uh, it was great to see you a few weeks ago at, at the AICE conference in Nashville, uh, where this these all kind of culminated together and uh, the reason for Cole and I being on here. Um, so just want to remind everybody, you know, given the, the time of year, here we are in the second week of June, hurricane season is upon us uh, at ICP under the Building Solutions Group. As I mentioned earlier, we have both the FiberLock and the Benefect brands, uh, both of which are in our clean kill coat system uh, for not only water restoration, also fire, uh, smoke damage, Please reach out to anybody uh, at the ICP team or your local distributor who you purchase products from uh, and inquire about our products. And um, look, we'll look for uh, for those of you who uh, chase storms uh, out in the field and, and we'll have boots on the ground uh, throughout the summer and fall. Cole, I'll pass it over to you. So, Bob, first of all, thank you for having us on uh, Healthy Indoors and um, the portals like this uh, to communicate valuable knowledge across the restoration community and the environmental community and the abatement community. They're, they're invaluable and there aren't enough of them. Um, so what you do, please keep doing it. And the more we can support what you're doing and contribute, we're happy to do it. Um, I am an education person. Uh, and so I, I, you, we mentioned earlier in this broadcast how important education is, how it's always been important. Um, to improve what we do, but how it's transcendently important this year, uh, coming off the pandemic with the with the fire and storm season and climactic changes and all the demands they're placing on the restoration industry overall. Um, if we can all remember the whole idea of clean it, kill it, and code it, and how that helps us think through how we intelligently use uh, cleaners and disinfectants and resistant coatings and smoke sealers and fungicidal coatings and all that, then we will improve our performance immeasurably because the, the chemicals and coatings that we use are useful and complementary tools to our primary task of removing the source contamination. Um, please get education, please reach out. Um, there's education on infection control and on communicable disease. There's education on what to do after a storm. There's education on lead and asbestos, which we mentioned. Um, you know, and a lot of it's free. And a lot of it can even help you maintain your IICRC certifications and other industry community certifications. Go to icbmasterworkscommunity.com. That's our company name, ICP, Innovative Chemical Products, and then masterworkscommunity.com. Uh, and browse what we have there. Reach out to our subject matter experts. Look at our editorial calendar um, and review uh, some of the training we've done in the past. And um, 
let us know what you need. And we're a crowdsourced platform. So if there's something you need that you haven't seen up to this point, let us know. Maybe it's something we can accommodate rather rather easily. But uh, Bob, thank you. Thank you very, very much for having us on. Our pleasure. I think it was really timely. And I'm happy, Josh, uh, both of you, that we had the opportunity to get together in Nashville and uh, brainstorm out this uh, debut show for the season. I think it was uh, really timely and uh, super, uh, super educational. And reality is both of you gentlemen have got, you know, just, just a, a massive amount of industry experience and knowledge. So it's uh, just always a pleasure to speak to both of you. Um, so, yeah, we, we are at that time now. Um, so first off, you know, I just want to remind you all, um, you know, we're coming to you live with a healthy indoor show. Um, of course, you know, we're, uh, we're, based on a lot of areas. We're a multimedia company. Um, HealthyIndoors.com is our mothership, I would say, for the most part, uh, where you can uh, see the uh, latest uh, incarnations of Healthy Indoors magazine, which I'll bring up. We actually, uh, interestingly enough, this is one of the few times that we've actually had the show come on at the uh, same time that we're releasing uh, the latest uh, issue of the magazine. And uh, this is it. That's what it looks like. We were actually live from uh, Finland this morning with uh with the uh, magazine so that was interesting uh but we also are live streaming now to you from our uh healthy indoors online global community platform which i think is really important if you haven't seen it yet it's something you definitely should take a look at the online community is uh, a platform that allows you to uh kind of get in the whole world of indoor environmental issues uh, it's i i'm i'm reluctant to compare it to facebook and linkedin but if you could imagine a linkedin or facebook that's totally indoor environmentally centric. Uh, tons of content, but more importantly, an opportunity to network with uh, people uh, in the industry from other disciplines uh, all over uh, all over the world. You know, so this is a, it's a great opportunity for you to uh, take a look at that and uh, get involved with it. Um, so uh, again, for, uh, you know, for uh, both Josh and uh, uh, Cole, you know, it's been great having you guys here. Um, we'll be back again next week, uh, same bat time, same bat channel, 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time uh, for the Healthy Indoors show. Um, until then, uh, you know, I'm the founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine, Bob Carl. I wish you all well, and I hope uh, everyone stays happy and healthy. So we'll see you soon. <laughs>